Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode we spoke to Alison Owen, the editor of the Writers and Artists Yearbook. We spoke with Alison about the history of the yearbook, the process of putting it together and how the literary industry has changed. Once again this is a remotely recorded episode so we apologise for the background noise and generally poorer audio quality but it's a great episode and we hope you enjoy it. So, Alison, great to have you on Always Take Notes. Again, we're recording this one remotely due to the lockdown conditions. Um, We wanted to start by just asking if you could just tell people who aren't familiar with it, what is the the Writers and Artists Yearbook? Okay, well, the the Writers and Artists Yearbook, which is a rather majestic tome of 800 plus pages, um, is a big red paperback, which has been in existence for the last 100 plus years. And I like to quote Susan Hill, who describes it as the writer's Bible. It is exactly that. It's the guide to how to write and how to get successfully published in various formats um, and across the media. So um, magazines, newspapers, predominantly books, of course, in all their different guises, e-books, audio, self-publishing it covers. It looks at writing for screen for theatre, writing poetry, um, and it's very much a guide and a handbook, really, to all would-be writers and existing writers who want to move into different disciplines. And it's about the, the life of being a writer, a serious writer who wants to make money out of one's craft, so it has sections on uh, tax and finance, um, contacting agents. So it's, it's both the creative side of it and what I call the necessary but not quite so exciting bits about the practicalities of leading a writer's life. How has it changed in its um, over the course of its history if it was founded in 1906? Yes, I mean, it's in some ways, for very obvious reasons, a great deal. It's got a lot bigger and a lot fatter. Um, but in, in a sense of why it still exists is very much why it existed in the first place. It's There's always a new generation of new writers trying to find their way um, through their craft and in getting noticed by the public, and that's by publishers and by agents, of course. Um, And I think the intentions behind the original books was to be the guiding hand. It's not a prescriptive guide. It's about writers helping themselves to make the right decisions and the right choices for their particular lifestyle and for their particular types of writing. And it's always been a combination of articles. Increasingly, we have more and more articles. We have about 85 now in the main edition. Uh, We also have a children's edition, which looks at YA picture books and middle grade fiction um, and non-fiction. And it's very much um, about giving advice from those people who've been there before, from very eminent writers. And then the lion's share of the book is a set of listings, which we update every year. And that's always been part of the book about who to contact, you know, a knowledge base of who were the right people to help you get your work published. And in fact, I, I've, I've managed to get to about 1934. I've been looking at all the old editions sitting in the Bodleian Library in Oxford uh, when I have time to do that. And it's a fascinating look at social history, really, as well as uh, writing history across the, the last decade. And I'm pleased to say it's been in print or published every single year since 1906, except once during the year uh, the war when there was a shortage of paper. So it's, the ethos and the reason for it existing is very similar. Obviously, the reason we do it every year is because things change. Companies come and go, we get new prizes, new events... Uh, new literary agencies set up. So the, the landscape is forever shifting, but the principles behind its existence is, is very much true today as it was in 1906, I think. And Alison, what is the specific history of it? Who who set it up originally and who has 
has been publishing it over that time yeah, before so, it came uh, out. Very august publishing house, ANC Black, uh, which, which comes from the um, end of the 19th century, uh, were the first uh, creators of it. The first editor was also a woman. Um, and it's been very much about uh, writing both in the UK, but in its early stages, what's also very, very fascinating is uh, how to get published in India, South Africa, so a reflection of our own um, geo-history, if you like. And it's ANC Black were bought by Bloomsbury Publishers a good 20 or so years ago, um, and Bloomsbury now publish it under their own imprint. But it's, so it's still published within the same uh, stable of companies, if you like. And why is it still published in book form? Um, That's a really why... good question. <laughs> Uh, because it still sells tens of thousands of copies every year, and I, it's we do publish it in ebook, and we publish some of the content, the what we call the listings, uh, the contact information. We publish that in a subscription database, and we don't do an audio book, but there's no reason why we shouldn't. We also do bits of the content um, in other books and, and license out some of the content. But the reason people want it in in physical form, I think, um, having talked to uh, writers and would-be writers at the events we run at Writers and Artists, is they want to have a physical uh, talisman, if you like, sitting on their shelves, reminding them that they, one, they are a writer, or two, they're going to be a published writer. And I think it's something that sits there, and, and once you've spent money on it, you're looking at it and you're thinking, I'm jolly well going to get on with it. It's also a lot easier, reference books are a lot easier to use in physical form, actually, than they are in ebook, uh, despite what sometimes people think. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I have a copy that I bought um, the year I left university in, in 2007, showing my age there. Uh, and it certainly, yeah, has sat on my sat on my shelf. I was wondering, there's been a, a great proliferation in recent years of kind of the writing industry, you know, of, of residencies and guides and events and, and things like that. How has um, the, the yearbook kind of steered its way through that and how have you... How significant a brand is it, really, in a world in which there's, there's a proliferation of, of this kind of a device? Yes, I think uh, one of our huge assets is brand, of course, and that's partly legacy. It's partly that 1906 history that has seen us well through the 20th century. It, it, I think one of the things that we're very aware of is to maintain that brand. It's a matter of... Uh, reviving it, uh, giving it a kickstart, looking at other ways we can expand that brand into other areas. And one thing we were very conscious about uh, about 10 years or so ago was, as you say, um, the arrival, because of, for obvious reasons, um, the way that new material could be distributed and free material too, uh, to individuals into their own houses. And also there was a proliferation of courses within the university sector. How we were going to offer what we did and still offer more variety, uh, better content um, to our, our user base. And so we have a website where we have uh, built a very strong community of writers. Uh, we do events where we're going out to communities across the country, and particularly we work with universities and other charitable organisations uh, to encourage people from lots of different backgrounds to come and learn all about writing. So we try not to be too offensively uh, London-centric. Uh, we also offer services to help people with their writing, and we also offer a lot of free material which supplements the paid-for content that we have in, in the year. But we like to think of um, the material that we have on our site, the sh shorter blogs and shorter advice articles, as the kind of latest of very up-to-date currency, and that the yearbook has taken a more reflective view across the last year or so uh, to give more um, articles which have a, 
uh, perhaps a, a slightly greater longevity. You mentioned the events. What are the sort of main questions that people ask about the publishing industry at events? By far and away, uh, our most successful or sold out events uh, are when we do anything to do with agents. I think most um, authors, uh, would-be authors, are fairly um, baffled by publishing itself. And they do ask quite a lot about the publishing process uh, and the editorial things but they really want to know about how to get an agent. Uh, what's the best way of doing that? What things they should avoid doing? What's peculiar or particular to their particular genre or age of writing? So we host uh, agent lunches, you know, out of lockdown at, at our Bloomsbury offices. And then we do, whenever we're running a, a publishing day of how to get published alongside writing um, events, we also have a, an agent panel every single day uh, on, on those, um, uh, those one-day events. And also... I guess, together with the agents over a drink as well. So it's, it's very much about how do I find my agent? Um, and we say the quick answer is look them up in the Writers and Artists Yearbook. Um, but they're very, very keen to know when they should apply to an agent, what their cover letter should look like, what other submission criteria and that kind of thing. It's interesting on, on the agent thing. I was thinking about this before we spoke because I know, um, you know lots of writers with agents. And I was kind of struggling, I think, to think of anyone who had acquired one strictly by sending stuff in to uh, the slush pile and it being picked up anonymously. It was much more often a recommendation from a colleague or you know, family or things like that. And clearly elements of, of nepotism and so forth are rife in, in that kind of world. Do you, do you think that the, the kind of, the way that you, you, you're facilitating here of like, you know, someone sending stuff in blind, what do you think the, the prospects of, of success are? And do you, is that something you discuss in the, in the yearbook? Yeah, we don't uh, have a, an article on that per se. Uh, we do acknowledge that it's it's difficult, and the best way of getting noticed if you're an unknown is to put together the most fantastic submission. And the best part of a fantastic submission, of course, isn't the cover letter. That goes some way to being uh, not shoved straight into the, the bin, of course, if you have a competent cover letter. But by far, it's just having jolly good writing, fantastic writing. I mean, I do share your concerns, but, and I think it's one of the reasons why we, we don't want to stay uh, locked in in London uh, when we're doing events where most agents are based, where most publishers are based, uh, where most journalists are based. And I think, I think it is a problem, and it has been a problem, that um, new writers think, you know, the back door is where I have to try and enter the publishing community, and, and those people who've already got some writing under their belt, be they a journalist or writing for TV, they already know some of the people in this kind of hallowed world. I think it is getting better, and I think one of the reasons it's got better is because it's had to. I think there's, with the um, emergence of people actually saying, uh, why are we not reading voices, stories from all the different pluralities of people that live in this wonderful land that is Britain and elsewhere? Why haven't we been reading those stories? We want to read them. People have shown us through self-publishing, uh, through websites and things that people do. People have a huge appetite for different types and variety by different people. Um, and actually, it hasn't, it hasn't looked very well. Uh, in terms of what the publishing industry themselves have done, haven't been going out and looking for those stories in, in greater number as they should have been. And they're picking up their feet on that. And as you know, there'll be there's a serious number of bursaries and new publishers, Jacaranda Books, and people who are looking out for, very deliberately, uh, new voices and schemes from uh, Literature North and, and the like who are 
making a very, very concerted effort and things that are funded by the Arts Council to support uh, and provide new opportunities. But it's, I, I, I tend to agree with you to an extent that it's a very, uh, initially it was a very closed and in the olden days, you know, seen as a gentlemanly uh, private income world, of course. Um, we've come a long way since then. And I think agents, good agents um, and agents who come to our events, they're not coming to our events just to tell people about publishing. They're coming to our events because they want to find wonderful new writers and they will all say that the writing is what matters um, and the reality is also that they're not going to find that many diamonds um, in the rust uh, when they're looking through all those hundreds of submissions that they get um, on a weekly basis. There are very few books that actually get published from any kind of slush pile but when they do find them they're, they're an exciting find for them. Could we talk about how you put the advice in the book together? How many people would you speak to ahead of writing the tips for getting an agent, tips for putting a proposal together? Yeah, so um, we have a, a kind of what I call the sort of five-month putting together of the book, which uh, the, the, all the listing side of things are looked after by a series of editors who work with me um, and who, like me, are all self-employed. Um, the commissioning side, which is the bit I, I love best being a, a commissioning editor and, and uh in publishing is deciding what new topics what ideas are current what things have been around in the ether for a bit and might need more explanation or a new um, view about them from a new writer or from a new agent and I do my research and I commission by speaking to and contacting individual authors people I might have heard at events either our own events or other people's um, linked to other articles I might have read somewhere else, uh, books I might have read myself, and I think, gosh, this is a, a great piece of literature. I would, I would like to hear that author's views on X, Y, or Z. So I, I, I put to them ideas that I have for an article, um, and then we take things from there and negotiate, and then they, they submit, and, and I discuss with them and do the editor and editorial side of things. So we have a, a rolling programme, I suppose, of articles. We don't, uh, for quite obvious reasons, um, recommission 80 new articles every year. Every year we do update and enhance existing articles and then we add another 15 or 20 articles for each of the titles each year as well um, on topics that I think uh, based on my knowledge of the sector um, and experience of publishing and of writing will be the sort of things that our, our readers would like to read. Um, Alison, so we, we were talking off air uh, before we started about how you'd gone back and looked at some of the yearbooks from years past and I was wondering if we could talk in the kind of broader question of how has advice that the yearbook is offering shifted both both from decades ago from the 1930s and you know the, the, the 50s and so forth but also um, more recently say in the last 20 years with the advent of the internet and things maybe if we start with what what was the yearbook recommending a long time ago and then maybe what was it recommending 20 years ago that was different yeah so I suppose one thing to uh, to clarify although the yearbook gives advice and it tries to be as pluralistic as possible to so offer uh, advice to as wide a number of people as possible from a wider spectrum of types of author writing in particular genres and particular types of writing so as I say whether that's for screen or theatre or poetry uh, we don't stipulate so we don't say you must do this and although uh, you could argue if something in the yearbook it's a form of recommendation we're not saying you should do this you definitely shouldn't do that we're trying to give our readers the tools to make some of those judgments for themselves um, and I think the yearbook's always done that I have a copy actually in front of me of the 1933 um, 
edition, which actually was in those days, was called, it was still called the Writers and Artists Yearbook, obviously. Um, it was called a directory for writers, artists and photographers. I think that's quite telling, uh, the power of photography uh, during that particular era. And it was, as, as that suggests, more a listing, so it's a who you get to contact. Now, of course, obviously in those days that was particularly pertinent because you wouldn't be able to find that information anywhere else. Uh, these days, where a lot of that information is potentially available online, not necessarily curated, not necessarily edited correctly, not with somebody who's made a judgment of whether it should be included. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons over time uh, we've developed a whole series of articles to complement the directory side of the book. And, and that's something that we increasingly are looking at enhancing because that definitely is information you wouldn't find anywhere else. So it sort of complements the, the directory side of things. But still looking at this this rather wonderful 1933 with a, with a, a brown paper cover with... with writing, um, sans serif writing on the front. It was three and six in those days. And just to indulge me a minute while I explain some of the things that are in it, which are also uh, different, but in, in a bizarre way, very similar to what we have now. So at the beginning of the book, we have a whole series of adverts in, in wonderful black and white. We have a, a, a typical writing course, and there's a woman, uh, rather for an unexplained reason, standing in a swimming costume next to that particular advert. And then we have about training. So learning how to write through uh, training at Metropolitan College of Journalism, that's nothing new. That's something that's happening in 1933. We have um, ads for typewriters and um, sorry, typists to type up people's work um, and a literary agency and that sort of thing. And the reason I mention all those um, ads and they're rather beautiful pieces that have come off uh, being printed on letterpress is that we do take a lot, of, we take advertising still in the yearbook because there are so many organisations um, and companies and universities that want to offer their services to the budding writer and that's the same today as it was then and as in then as it is today we are happily to take happily take advertising revenue we obviously look very judiciously at the particular advertisers because it helps underwrite our costs and it allows us to publish this book year in year, year out but the other thing I've just looked at the contents page again for this 1933 edition and we have Canadian journals, uh, Canadian publishers, Christmas card work. There's some, some rather lovely things that uh, we wouldn't necessarily be including in the book now. And we've got drawing for advertisements and drawings for cards and drawings for the humorous papers. Quite a lot about film, 1930s, very obviously uh, quite a lot going on in the film world post-silent movies. We have sections on India, uh, South Africa, areas of our at that stage, empire, and freelance opportunities. Now, one could argue that those have become uh, much more truncated these days uh, than they were at, at that particular time. But we still have, and these areas of the book are still a very strong and a bit that gets added to it uh, quite extensively every year, both the literary agencies, but also competitions and prizes. Those bits in particular, and also ways of funding uh, one's work, uh, through organisations who help support struggling writers, we see uh, that they year on year increase in the, in the number of um, listings, entries that we include. Prizes is particularly interesting. I mean, it's a, quite a burgeoning area where people um, and organisations are happy to support and sponsor prizes for up-and-coming authors. And could you tell us a little bit about your background as an editor, both as commissioning editor and your consultancy, and how you came to work on the yearbook? 
Yeah, so I uh, I started working on English, my, my degree was in English literature and language and I went, my first job was working for Longman in Harlow, which were at that stage owned by the same company that uh, owned Penguin, and working on the books that I'd actually used as a student and that was a great delight because I was ending up you know, talking to the authors who had been my, my tutors in, in the olden days. Uh, so that was very exciting. So I started very much on the academic um, higher ed side of things. I then moved to Oxford University Press and worked in the department, which was in those days called the trade department, which was their non-academic uh, stuff. So stuff that's sold to real people, if you like, what they used to call it, the mysterious general reader. Um, and again, I worked uh, on things like the Oxford Companion to English Literature with Margaret Drabble. And I worked on the Oxford Companion to Wine with Jancis Robinson. And I worked on big, hefty Homes. Uh, and what was interesting, both in terms of the content and the way that uh, we were commissioning that content, we were at the very, very early stages. So I'm talking about 25 years or so ago now. We were looking at how we chunk content, so reference content. How could we use that material in ways which was beyond the physical book? Um, and I remember even in the editorial department, one of my colleagues and I, rather than production where that would sit these days we started doing some very rudimentary xml markup for our titles and thought and captured the text in some very rudimentary ways because we thought one day that might be useful and and hey presto uh, it jolly well was so i i, I did a lot in uh, reference and uh, literary uh, side of things books on writing quotation dictionaries um and then uh, for very obvious reasons trying to balance a career and lots of children uh, three in my case, I decided to start to work for myself. I'd worked overseas in Singapore uh, and Malaysia for a French publisher, came back to the UK um, and looked at what I wanted in terms of my creative life and my family life. And I set up a company and um, had been working for myself with a limited company for 10 years after having been a freelance. And I suppose what I'm really interested in is finding ways of producing the best content in the the most efficient way for readership and understanding what the market really wants and that's something that publishing often hasn't been very good at um, and so asking the market coming up with a way of delivering that working with a team so what I try and do is replicate teams um, and I have lots of on the year but there's seven editors that work on that um, and and they become little experts for their section so we have one who's an expert in literary agents for example uh, somebody else who worries about the book section somebody else who um, is interested in the self-publishing side and we work collectively to produce something uh, that works well as, as, as a kind of combined effort. It used to be an in-house uh, project. I suppose I, when I first went setting up my company, I was looking around to think, what do I want to do? Which kind of projects might I like to work on? And I, I literally go to companies and say, I notice that so-and-so has left. Uh, have you ever considered outsourcing that piece of work? And if you are, you know, would you consider this kind of concept? Um, and I do that with Across, so I work for lots and lots of different publishers um, on various different projects. And I have a whole team of, I have some fully paid um, payroll people and then other people who are freelance editors uh, and, and designers and other people working across, across the UK. So it's a rule of the podcast that we always ask about money to every guest and how it relates to their writing lives. And obviously, you know, in, in this kind of world of writerly advice, it's such a a huge and often unspoken issue. And I thought very interesting that you touched on this kind of notion that British publishing had a kind of gentlemanly idea based on private income and things like that. To what extent, which which certainly, I think I'm sure that's true, um, and I think it's, it's kind of problematic, to what extent do you think that has shifted? And to what extent also do you think that 
the industry preys upon the, the desire of large numbers of people to write uh, to in order to, to get working conditions that are often rather inequitable in terms of how much people are being paid or the, the terms and the way things happen. Yes, I mean, it's a very thorny question, really, and there's so many different parts to that. I mean, I suppose looking at it from another, say, looking at it from the publisher's point of view, hmm. uh, it's very expensive to produce a book. Um, and I think what people aren't, I'm not saying that's, that is definitely not an excuse for people not being paid uh, royally in any real sense. But it is expensive uh, to create a book because there's lots of different people, individuals, who have a say and um, a role in producing that from your designer and your various stages of different editing. Uh, agent obviously gets a cut also of any author's earnings. There's the production side of it um, and the printing. Now, obviously, now that we can do ebooks, uh, audiobooks, and we can also do POD, print on demand, that takes away some of the the risk, if you like, that the publisher's taking and, 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 and things are not held up in stocks so and they're not losing money from stock just sitting in a warehouse. Uh, but there, I suppose the... Uh, a publisher would argue that they're taking risk um, and a punt on an unknown author or even an established author. Um, and we also know that lots and lots of people don't read books and that, you know, if you compare with other sectors, the number of books that are sold compared with even uh, a single or something that's downloaded in terms of the music sphere or something on Netflix, you know, we're talking tiny units. Um, and although... You know, the three of us and those listening to this podcast might be somewhat aghast at that. This is a harsh reality. Uh, looking at it from the author's perspective, you know, it's not a good enough answer what I've just given them, really, to say, well, it's expensive to produce a book. Um, I think you're right. I think the Society of Authors have, have campaigned a lot about this fairly recently. Uh, there, whenever we get surveys from the UK or the US about authors' earnings, it's, it's a pitiful, um, you know, something like five you know, 500, 5,000, whatever, depending on the type of author uh, per year, which is definitely not something anybody can live on. I know that there are charities that are supporting authors, and I know, as I say, Society of Authors, uh, Writers Guild, are, are doing a lot to champion uh, authors' earnings. And I know that uh, in terms of extracurricular, authors are having to supplement their writing income uh, through visiting schools for doing events and I feel very strongly as indeed does Society of Authors uh, that authors should be paid for that work and that they shouldn't be offering to do any of that for free um, you know and I feel strongly that for the yearbook of course we pay uh, a sensible amount for, for every article that we get that we uh, commission um, and I think I'm, I'm going to be talking to some authors later this week about advice for a, a new project I'm thinking of um, and although that will be a phone conversation I'm paying them for that phone conversation because I think that's that's appropriate because it's their uh, intelligent brain and experience that I, I'm wanting to harness. It's, it's a tricky one. I think, uh, I think you're right that lots and lots of people want to be published and it is something that uh, the people, we, all of us, think is something which is a great um, triumph. And indeed it is because we know how difficult it is to get published. There's so many people wanting uh, to get their book into print. I think it's another reason why some people are choosing to self-publish. And when people self-publish well and they know their markets and they know how to get to their market, some people are doing financially very well with that. They're keeping a much higher percentage of any royalties that are earned uh, through selling through the likes of Amazon and other and, and the Apple Store, etc. This episode of Always Take Notes is supported by Clean Prose, London's first co-working space designed specifically for writers. 
Based over three stories in Shoreditch in the east of the city, Clean Prose's mission is to provide writers of all stripes, from novelists to playwrights, with a space and a community designed especially for them. To foster strong connections, Clean Prose offers a professional network that many writers miss when they work alone at home, at a library, or in a noisy cafe. The ground floor is an event space, offering workshops, talks from experts, and book launches. The first floor is an open-plan common room. It is a space for writers to connect, collaborate, drink coffee, and develop their professional networks within the publishing, TV, film, and other creative industries. The second floor is a totally quiet space in which to concentrate and write, with private desks, lockers, and an extensive book collection. To find out more, go to cleanprose.co.uk. Always take notes, listeners, are eligible for a five-day pass to Clean Prose. To redeem this offer, please email write at cleanprose.co.uk with the subject line ATN-Welcome5. I'm glad you mentioned self-publishing. When did the yearbook start writing about that? And kind of more generally, when, do you, when does something become big enough to merit inclusion in the yearbook? Yes, I, I guess uh, I would argue that it's always been for self-publishers as well as uh, published writers or traditionally published writers in the sense that the advice about how you uh, write, so tone of voice or thinking about first chapters or how you uh, write for a picture book or how you uh, write about drama or how you put uh, a script together for a TV um, adaptation. All of those things which are included in the yearbooks uh, are relevant whether you're self-published or not self-published. Thinking about being a professional writer, what what it means to produce a draft, a first draft, and what you have to do to produce a final draft. Thinking about how a book is composed, how a reader approaches that content, so if it's non-fiction, what are those ancillary bits of information that are required? So I think it's always been, and POD, you know, we have, we've had articles on POD for a very long time, uh, about how you present yourself as a writer, increasingly in social media and the like. Those are just as relevant to self-published authors as they are to traditionally, because both are professional authors if they do what they do well and to a, a level of credibility uh, that we would expect to see. But ha- when did we first have an actual section on self-publishing? Well, I've been the editor now for, this is my eighth edition, uh, so we didn't have one uh, before I arrived. We did have one on digital, uh, and then I've been looking at, because digital, of course, isn't peculiar to self-published authors, it's across the board. So every year I'm looking at how we rename or reorganise the content, and I'm very aware that it's a section that uh, it needs to be acknowledged in a section of its own right, but it feeds across the whole of the yearbook. Um, and I have been criticised. I remember somebody reviewing the yearbook a few years back and saying there's nothing on self-publishing, even though at the time there was a whole section on it. And I did reply saying, well, actually, it's all about self-publishing. It's not called the Writers and Artists Yearbook for traditionally agented authors. It's called the Writers and Artists Yearbook, and that means that's for, for everyone. What is the, the, the ratio, as it were, both in terms of the content in the book and in terms of you know, the people who you think are buying it, between people who are interested in writing fiction and non-fiction? Yes, I would say that uh, definitely books is probably the predominance as opposed to screenwriting uh, or poetry um, or film. 
difficult to say we have done a survey we did actually do a self-publishing survey a couple of years ago to help uh, inform our information about a new book we did specifically about the nuts and bolts of how to self-publish your book in a, in a very professional way um, and it was I think it was about 60% fiction 40% non-fiction uh, so if that's any indication of uh, the way that it might be sliced of course there's a many more opportunities now in non-fiction and a lot of people are reading non-fiction and the whole different genres within that so uh, literary non-fiction narrative non-fiction um, popular science popular history I think it probably is still about sort of 60 40 it's, it's almost impossible to say without asking every single person who who picks that book up uh, but I'm very aware that it's important for example to have articles in the agent section on submitting non-fiction as well as uh, fiction um, in 2019, you published um, a, a separate guide to getting published. What was the rationale behind that? Yeah, so twofold, really. Uh, one, brand extension. So if we're going to be uh, the best and uh, the most accurate and the most up-to-date at providing information about everything you want to know about being published, uh, then it was important that we had... Uh, some other up-to-date guides that did that that could um, expand on some an individual article perhaps in the yearbook and have a more in-depth approach and look at it. It was also a culmination of my own experience of working in this industry for a long time, of going to speak to people at uh, events and literary um, conventions to talk about writing and pulling together the sorts of things that they wanted to know and putting it into a physical book. Uh, it was about reflecting some of the changes in our industry and the ways in which writers can, or the opportunities writers are given, I think, greater opportunities to see their work available to the market. And as I say, and that's in the different formats, thinking about um, cooperative writing, different ways of writing being funded, uh, working with crowdfunded platforms that kind of things and, and so uh yeah pulling all of those things together and extending our brand and it's, it, it comes alongside five other books in that particular series which is the writers and artists guide to series um and one of the other things i'm doing as a commissioning editor with on the particular writers and artists is always looking at other opportunities and ways that we can uh, provide our our readership and our user base and our community with things they really want to know could you tell us a bit about the events that you run, both um, when they started and how they've developed, and who, who comes to them? What's the kind of demographic in terms of age, in terms of men and women, that kind of thing? Yeah, so my colleague uh, James Reynoldson and Claire Povey, who uh, work in-house for Writers and Artists owned by Bloomsbury, uh, they're responsible for the events side of things and also the, the services, editorial services we provide. So events started uh, roughly five to six years ago. Uh, they're a combination of internal events at Bloomsbury's own offices in London, um, and as I say, working with other organisations around the country. So for one a good example is the Open University, uh, who have... Um, places, residences, physical buildings in in Cardiff, in Belfast, in Edinburgh and in London. Uh, and they also have uh, a, a group of students who are doing online creative writing courses, but they no longer offer them any physical coming together, discussion, uh, sharing ideas. And we found that uh, with a lot of good things going online, that actually more and more people do want a sense of community where they get together with like-minded people. They may not have that in their own communities. They might belong to a writing group, but they may not. Uh, they may not have much time to get together with other people, but they, we put on uh, one-day courses. 
um, across, as I say, across the country. The demographic depends on where we're hosting it uh, and who else we're partnering with if we are partnering. Uh, if it's uh, if it's a literary event at something like the uh, York Literary Festival, the demographic is very mixed, mixed uh, slightly more female than men, uh, tends to be across the board. Uh, Literary events tends to be all ages. If we're working with a university, we'll obviously we offer some places to some of those students if they're undergraduates and a lot of younger students. Uh, if it's an event that we've done, say, with the Women's Institute, which we had, again, pretty obvious that the demographic there is predominantly, well, almost exclusively female um, and of a certain age range, uh, post 60. So it's we try to be as providing as much as we can for all uh, individuals. We're not aiming at a demographic who have lots of money to spend so we deliberately keep our events at a fairly competitive rate we offer bursaries uh, we also have some of our authors that we work with and agents are often offer uh, free places on those for students or, or other people who can't don't have the means to, to fund it themselves uh, and we offer competitions so people can win places to come to some of those events has the yearbook itself ever been criticized as too london-centric in step with the industry as a whole and if so, were the events a way of combating that? Uh, they weren't a deliberate way of combating that at all. They were just really what we felt was the ethos uh, of the yearbook and the spirit of the yearbook. Because uh, although it's published out of London, uh, because that's where we happen to, to, to be as a publisher, it's in terms of the content, it covers the whole of the UK and overseas as well, beyond. So it, it's not particular in terms of its content to London in any way, what's or shape or form. I don't consciously think I'm going to get an article from somebody who lives in the north of Scotland, uh, but I do happen to have articles from people who live all over the place uh, because there's interesting people with interesting things to say uh, well outside the, you know, the M25. So, no, I don't think it's been a criticism of Yearbook at all, or not the one that I've been aware of, and certainly with events uh, that we list here, libraries that we talk about, prizes, they are from... Uh, accessible from wherever you happen to be. Could you tell us how how it sells in terms of the, the quantities and how that that compares to to in the past? And you know, what I suppose what fraction of your of your business as a whole as a brand has has moved online? Yeah, I can't tell you exact uh, sales figures, but I can tell you it, it won't be any surprise that you know, 50, 25 years ago, uh, we were able to take more advertising revenue than we take now, and that we were able to sell in terms of units uh, more and more copies. Uh, but we still sell. I mean, we wouldn't be publishing it and selling it every year unless it wasn't doing extremely well, uh, which it is. In terms of uh, expanding, one of the reasons we developed our community website um, and also and also the um, the events that we do was for that very reason. I mean, as a publisher, publishers are always looking at market share, uh, how their own products are doing, and what some of the decisions you make when you're looking at your P and Ls and five year plus plans is. Uh, What's the market going to look like in another five years' time? How do I mitigate risk uh, that that might be bringing towards me? And, and how do I continue to uh, maintain my market share, very important, my visibility, my brand? And how do I continue to bring in revenue to support that uh, brand developing over the future? So, yes, I think uh, we continue to do very well as a percentage of the overall revenue. It's very high. And... Uh, it, it's, it continues to be a very successful brand. And as I say, one of the things I'm doing is looking at how we expand that further. I mean, I think it's it's interesting that uh, we're expanding a brand both in physical form, so other books, 
as well as uh, expanding into um, other events and that kind of thing. So we're, we're looking in all directions um, and we wouldn't be publishing new books in the brand if we didn't think that we were going to do well with them. Um, and we are. So. In terms of your other services, I was interested to see on your website that you offer things like manuscript reviews and synopsis reviews and that sort of thing. Could you tell us a little bit about how that fits in with the kind of general business plan and, and everything else? Yeah, so at the same time that the uh, website was set up, which was prior to me arriving at Writers and Artists, um, originally it had been a, a sort of shop window, so, a, a, you know, a marketing site, really. Um, and then uh, quite a amount of extensive research asking the community, communities of writers, uh, what it is they wanted, what kind of advice and how they might want that advice delivered. Um, and providing services and support, uh, which is a, a, as a smaller part of what we offer, is uh, was something that they wanted, and again, I think I think uh, having spoken to writers a lot, what they want is reassurance, huge amounts of reassurance from a brand that they can rely on and that they trust. There is a lot of information out there, and they want information that they feel is unpartisan, is well uh, conceived and thought through, and is from experts. Um, and I think. Whatever we do, including with those services, we're working with agents and very experienced editors to provide the advice and the editing through those. I think that's something that we always aim to do. What is the role in, in the main yearbook of the, the essays or the, the sections by, by famous writers? And I'm just, just looking at, at the, the kind of current one. You've got Tom Holland, Benjamin Zephaniah, Neil Gaiman, like really huge names. And clearly that's, that's, they've got a star power quality to them. But is there a risk that they are kind of skewing the impression? Because, you know, in, in terms of sales and, and commercial success and so forth, they are in many ways outliers, inevitably, by, the, by their very nature. Um, do, do, do you ever have sort of notes of a like not very well known mid list author or you know something something like that to, to leaven it slightly? Yes, I mean I suppose I'm not going to name names because I don't want to, uh, but some of them are more uh, mid list. I mean you're right that it's it's important uh, that we don't what's the word? Yeah, over inflate. Uh, it's seeming like it's an easy proposition to get published, which we know it isn't. I suppose my counter argument is. Uh, each of the J.K. Rowlings or the Kimberly Chambers or the Kerry Hudson or the Claire Norths or the Mick Herons um, or the Tom Hollands or the Nell Stevens that are in the book, the Ruby, Ruby Tando, you know, they once upon a time were mere mortals. They too were unpublished writers. Um, and they, through dint of their efforts, the quality of their writing, and, and in some cases it took them a long time. I mean, there's an absolute... Um, there's some really good books, um, sorry, articles on you know how long it took me to get published, um, and the longer ride, um, winding road to publication in in the Seaway, the children's Western artist yearbook. Uh, there's a brilliant article on that. So I think, you know, that's my point really. That once upon a time they weren't published, and what they're saying is that they too used this tome in the early days when they were were starting to to write and think about what they would do with their work, and so they are partly. Uh, recommenders if you like of the book which is obviously very good from a sort of sales marketing aspect but it's much greater than that they are inspiring they're there to inspire our writers to think about uh, how you can get published how how good you can be and the various stories about how they uh, arrived at, at being a published writer you know Kimberly Chambers working on a market stall uh, you know these are these are people who haven't all come from uh 
well-off, well-connected backgrounds. And I think by telling their stories in miniature and also talking about their style or approach to writing is incredibly practical, but also very inspiring um, for our writers. How important these days is a brand on social media for an author? Yeah, good one. I mean, it, I mean, in sense, sorry, good question. It's the sort of thing that a lot of um, people at our conferences also ask us about. You know, the fear of of not being on social media, or how on social media they feel that they um, savvy that they are. Undoubtedly, it, it plays a huge part, or can do, and it's important. But I think if you talk to publishers, and also uh, perhaps not so much the publicists, but if you talk to editorial teams, uh, they want a writer who can write. If if they're not able to be social see media um, whiz, then that's something that the marketing publicity departments uh, will be offering and supporting them with um, and helping them set up websites if necessary. I mean, of course, that's not something a self-published author would have. And I think for self-publishing, just to get your name out there or to be seen amongst those thousands, millions of other self-published books, uh, big social media friendly is is a really important and having some form of strategy, um, how you're going to find your readership. Uh, is becoming increasingly important and it's not it's not exclusively of course to, to publishing the social media um, world definitely with Bryce and Artists we own we have our own brands um, Twitter Facebook etc uh, for, for our particular brand um, and I would say that probably most authors do take it quite seriously but it's not I think the advice what we would usually say or certainly some of our um, article writers is don't try and scattergun don't try and be a a great success in every different uh, social media platform you know choose your the one you might want to start with and see how it goes and build from there if you can and and if you need to get other people to help you with it if you're self-published it might be some money well spent uh, so that you can concentrate on the things that you're fantastic at which is is writing i was going to want to ask how uk focused is is the yearbook i mean you mentioned again we were talking about some of the much older editions that had focuses on uh south africa and india um, how much do you regard yourself as being a guide to the British publishing market and how much is it becoming increasingly international? I would say it's it's predominantly the British market. Uh, we do include uh, sections on American agents and American and other English language publishers in the physical book and then online we have some extra content uh, for agents and publishers and newspapers and magazines uh, in other countries but again for quite obvious reasons we can't include all of those in the physical book Uh, that isn't our main market it's uh, we are looking and talking to our Indian uh, uh, company um, my colleagues over there about doing an Indian edition which would be particularly exciting because there's been great great um, developments and uh, the number of reading public out there is, is fantastic the number of writers and the number of events like the Jaipur Literary Festival is it's extraordinary and a number of uh, publishers new libraries uh, new parts of the sector in terms of producing books so the production side and the design side of publishing um, is huge in, in that in the Indian subcontinent and so uh, but I wouldn't presume to produce that book from here, which is why I'm talking to my colleagues over there because they know about their market and they know and they have their contacts over there. So it is it's it's the it's the barometer, if you like, of the British publishing scene, and it that's one of the reasons again we have to have it every year because it, it keeps up to date and reflects that um, and discusses that. And we always have an article 
from Tom Tivnan at the bookseller on news, views and trends, review of the publishing year. And that's very much a UK-centric view of the publishing year with a little bit of uh, thinking about the wider universe for obvious reasons, again, because of the five big publishers who, who are global conglomerates. Uh, but yes, there's, there's some very good uh, competitors in the US and I would rather be the top uh, the top player in this market uh, than trying to dilute what we do and not do it quite so well in the US. We do sell through the US because we obviously have our own company there, uh, but not in truckloads. And we do sell into uh, Australia, uh, into Canada, into New Zealand. And we do have sections on New Zealand and Australia um, and South Africa. But uh, yes, it's very much uh, a UK-centric product. Um, as we come to the end almost of our of our time, I was wondering whether you could talk through some of your main tips for publishing. Um, in the 2019 edition of the yearbook, you offer some that hold true regardless of format. Yeah, I think uh, the main tips, I think it's, it's really write what you want to write. I think you cannot come up with a full... I mean, people do do formulate writing sense that they come up with their own concept and then they produce more and more novels in that, in that genre or that vein. You need to write as a writer what you're in your heart you want to write and not what you think somebody else wants you to write. I think that will produce the best possible writing. I think you need to uh, do your homework, use the likes of the yearbook and other resources and really understand what the publishing industry is about. Understand how it is structured, understand how agents work and what they will and might not be offering you so that you can make really informed decisions about what you are going to do. I think you do necessarily have to be patient. Um, and if you're finding that you are getting knockbacks uh, for um, too many knockbacks, it might be that your submission isn't quite what it should be. Uh, it might just mean the time is not right for that story. And it also might just mean there's just too many books wanting to be published and therefore trying the self-publishing option as long as you do it uh, really well and professionally and you take advice and don't attempt to do it all yourself uh, is a good option to, to consider. I think it's about, uh, as I say, understanding how it works and talking to other people, connecting with other writers, connecting with authors online, following uh, Twitter feeds for agents on the whole, publishers tend to be quite a nice, friendly bunch as to editors and agents, and they want to find, they really do want to find brilliant new writers and connect with them, and they love discussing uh, writing and creativity. So I think it's being keeping your ears and eyes open. And then, of course, the main thing is to write. You know, it's not to spend too much time going to literary conventions. It's not doing too much research, so there's never time to actually sit and do the thing. It's sort of sticking one's bottom to the table, to the, to the chair and making oneself do 200, 2000, whatever it is, words a day, a week, a month, being a bit dogged about it, realizing it, it can be really hard work, but keeping at it because you believe it's what you want to do. Um, and having that faith, because coming back to that point I made a little while back, you know, everybody was a debut author once upon a time. Nobody was born a writer. Um, and therefore, and I do say this at my events, you know, that there isn't any reason why somebody sitting in the room that I'm addressing or talking to or having a discussion isn't going to be the next stellar super bestseller. And anyway, does everybody want to be that? Or do they want that one book published? Think about their own 
horizons, what it is they really want to get out of this. I think that's an important aspect too. Well, look, Alison, thank you for being such a stellar guest on Always Take Notes um, and wishing you all the very best with uh, the yearbook and with your other projects going forward. And thanks for your patience with the, um, the lockdown uh, audio recording as well. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you both very much. Hello, it's us again. Um, Simon, what did you make of that episode? I thought it was very interesting. I mean, I've had a copy of the Writers and Artists Yearbook since I left university a number of years ago. I have to say, I haven't actually used it that much. Maybe I should have used it more. Uh, but I thought it was really interesting um, to, to kind of dig into, yeah, how, how the brand has developed and changed and, and the, the, the plethora of services they now offer and also her views on the relationship between publishers and writers and where the relative balance of power lies in that what about you yeah i really um enjoyed it i mean it was interesting to see in the most recent edition that they had a essay on kind of writing for gaming um as well as all the self-publishing stuff i mean it's it's just goes to show how much the industry has changed yeah Um, uh, again, really, really good to have her on. We should also give our um, our naked request for funding at this stage. So um, as Rachel and I have been <laughs> shamelessly doing in, in recent episodes, uh, we'd like, if you've enjoyed the show, to direct you to our crowdfunding page, which is at patreon.com slash always take notes. Many thanks to all those who have contributed in uh, recent weeks. Um, Rachel, what do, what do the good listeners get if they sign up there? The good listeners get a bundle of pitches to a number of outlets um, in exchange for their donation. So you can see how different pitches are put together, how to be successful um, and critique <laughs> the styles of, of the writers, <laughs> if you so wish. It's, a, it's, it's genuinely a, 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 I think, quite useful package that we're offering and we really appreciate everyone who helps. Um, anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikham. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer is Nicola Keane. Our social media is by Owen Redahan. Our graphic design is by James Edgar. And our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always, on the aforementioned Patreon at Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.